0: Hi, I'm Rudy from Stag, and you are listening to the Denim Hunters podcast.
1: Welcome to the Denim Hunters podcast. My name is Thomas, and I'm your host. Whether denim is your passion or your profession, or maybe both, this is the podcast for you. Denim Hunters is a blog-turned-consultancy platform. We direct denim business through insights, creativity, and action. If you have a denim business and you'd like to know more about how we can help you grow it, go to denimhunters.com forward slash work. Before we get to the interview, I wanted to let you know how much I appreciate that you're listening. And I have a small favor to ask of you to help me grow this podcast. Would you share it with five denim heads you know? Ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts are also more than welcome. And don't forget to subscribe to get notified when new episodes come out. Alright, we're almost ready to get to the interview. But first, here's the FAQ of this episode. So Rudy, what are some of the most frequently asked questions that you get?
0: Uh, what jeans am I wearing? So I'm going to say, I'm not wearing jeans, I'm going to be honest <laughs> and say I'm wearing a Smiths Suzuki Chino, which I love, but... So uh, I'm not going to tell you a lie, but I'm not going to be a geeky and say I'm wearing a pair of jeans.
1: So that's the question that people ask when they meet you, when they meet you in the store, for instance. or
0: uh, In the store, uh, it's normally what are my favorite jeans, what's my favorite brand. But I'm a prostitute. I wear loads of different brands. <laughs> um, I want to experiment. I want to try. I want to play. I'm greedy. I am all the wrong things to say to a kid. Um, uh, I, you know, I own loads of different jeans or whatever, but it's my job to know about the fabrics and how they wear and so on. Mm-hmm. So that's my excuse of owning loads of different brands. So everything in the store is something I buy because I actually wear it myself. So I wear different things. So today may be only, tomorrow maybe full count, uh, next day maybe be another brand. So I don't have one particular brand, but Smith's Suzuki is the one that I'm following at the moment mostly because I love the story behind it.
1: If you have a question that you'd like me to answer or ask my guest in a future episode, you can submit it at denimhunters.com forward slash questions. You can send it in as text, which I'll then read out, or you can record it as audio, which we can then play back on the podcast. Just remember to state your name and your Instagram username. Great, Rudy. So uh, thank you for coming on the podcast here.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: So people, uh, well, I mean, I guess a lot of the listeners here will know you from your store, Stone of a Stack in London, but you actually also do a lot more than retail. So, and we're going to talk about that because we, uh, we're going to talk about the whole chain of uh, making denim from, you know, the very conception of ideas to then, of course, selling them in stores. Uh, because you work with everything here, really. And uh, I guess one of the few... Uh, in the business that actually do this uh, the whole chain so I'm quite excited to hear that part uh, and in your experience since then we can discuss about that but first I think we need to get to know Rudy a little bit better
0: so um, very humbly I am um, tied to the shop probably three days a week um, the other four days are still working so, basically, I'm based in London, on the east side of London, uh, where, in fact, it's, it's an area I fell in love with. So I, I sort of moved here residentially about 17, 18 years ago. Mm-hmm. The store, Son of Stag, is also about 17, 18 years old. Um, the company is since 1993. So, when we started, we were doing consultancy. We were working on wholesale distribution. Fun enough for some Danish brands, mm. and that's the reason why the brand or the name Son of Stag comes from. So, it was a guy... Uh always a guy uh who is still a friend, Torben youth uh spelled H J O R T H.
1: Okay. And he was yes. a
0: designer of a brand, Stag, okay. or son of a stag. And it's his family name, so Jorth actually translates into Danish, as you know, yeah, is Stag. Yeah. So he's son of a stag. And basically I fell in love with the story. Um, I worked with him. Um, his heart really wasn't designed, not some of the business side of things. So when we parted company in business, I wanted to keep the name, so we did a deal. I took the name on, Son of a Stag, because I, I really enjoyed that name. I love the story behind it. But um, coming back to Son of Stag, so we always wanted to actually, um, we, we fell in love with the Japanese denim scene and so on. When we started, we were scared of how it was going to go, whether we were going to get um, money in the till and so on. So we, 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 we decided to do some commercial brands. But then every season we would take another two brands on that were should we say the niche, the 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 more geeky brands and so on, um, and and we we explored it bit by bit. We would educate the customers. So eighteen years ago, when people came in, you talked about Salvage Denim, and they would look at you blankly, like, "What are you talking about?" So you had to actually introduce it. You had to talk about it. This is before the whole explosion in Europe. Anywhere in Europe, very few people knew about Salvage Denim. Mm-hmm. They were probably wearing it. The older boys, the older the older client probably had salvaged denim denim, without actually knowing they were wearing salvage. So there were loads of different shops, uh, you know, selling Levi's and so on, and selling the salvage garments. Um, But it it wasn't explored. It wasn't talked about. It wasn't that it was a special fabric. And we were the guys at at the front line actually educating the customers to the point that some people would not understand, didn't care, some did. And those ones who did care are still customers or son of Stag. So sometimes I meet people, and I know they've been with us from the beginning. They've been very loyal. Mm-hmm. They've learned. And now these are the guys who will actually know more than most people. So they will, you know, when people come in, you have to be really honest. So sometimes they Google things, and, and you know, they probably listen to your podcast or they're they're looking to you thomas and and following you you may say something that i haven't picked up on and they'll bring it back to the store and they'll say did you know that the discount on the back pocket of levi 1954 is x amount per inch and you and you you look at them and say well i'm sure you're right because you've probably done this research but i don't know for sure so hands up i don't know that fact but i'll write it down um but, you know, you, you, you learn by your customers. It's so important to be on the shop floor. So even though I don't need to be on the shop floor, I enjoy being on the shop floor because I learn from my customers. Mm-hmm. So there's lo- loads going on in the east side of London. So um, we have Central St. Martin's, London College Fashion, all these guys, some of the tutors and a lot of the students live in this area. So the east side of central London, E1, if you want, Brick Lane, Spitzelhoof Market, Shoreditch, this is, this is where it's all happening. The West End is more touristy. It's more where people come to from outside and they're not necessarily into, of, of course, it's changing and people will travel there to see a particular shop. Um, but genuinely, the fashion side is more on the east side of London, and central east. And this is, uh, where I live. This is where the store is. This is where we have a showroom, which we use for distribution. Agency consultancy, then we have uh, soldier blue, which is something that we decided to do because I own loads of vintage machines so we decided that we would do soldier blue as a way of not just being negative to the earth and to the environment because obviously we all know let's put hands up and say we now know all clothing it hurts the environment in some sort of way it hurts the soil hurts the environment and so on so we thought, well we want to be a little bit more environmentally friendly we want to do something that makes each garment last longer we don't like throwaway fashion we never have and we don't and now what we did with soldier blue um is we repair jeans or garments we upcycle we repair we alter we create we do different things which actually means that the garment isn't thrown away which was our way of doing something good that wasn't just selling new product Mm -hmm. um and Soldier Blue is now quite famous. I, I think, you know, I meet different parts of, or different people from different parts of the world who know Soldier Blue. Um, and we were taking jobs on from different shops, and now we can't handle that. So, because we're too busy for it. So, we, we, we're doing just our own uh, customers. So, they come to Son of Stag, they drop something in, we walk to Soldier Blue. Um, and we're very lucky because it's not only the machines we're using Soldier Blue the team that we have in Soldier Blue are amazing. Um, so we have Steph. We have David, who used to work for Levi's, for example. He used to actually work. I think uh, you know Liz uh, Redcliffe? Who yeah. Used to be the, uh, right. So he was mentored by her. So David used to actually, for example, he was a Levi ambassador, but he used to actually take the all archival pieces and put them back together. So he's an amazing, amazing, amazing tailor. So he works full time for me uh, at Soldier Blue. So he he's joined me. Of course he gets paid well, but he's joined me really because it's a playground for him mm-hmm. with all those vintage machines. Um, if you want if you visit Soldier Blue, it's like going back into an old tailoring shop from the past with all the uh, props that we have and all the machines we have and so on. So um and, and with Son of Stag, I have to say genuinely we we can't take every brand on that we offered. I mean, a lot of brands throw things at us to try and take the brand on, but we we we've learned not to just say yes to everything. So we we have to be very careful. Sadly, some friends who own brands who respect very much have had to go by the wayside because we we can't hold it. So we eventually drop brands and the other shops will pick them up and that's the way it goes. Um, But we think on denim, Mm -hmm. we seriously have it nailed. (laughs) If someone walks into a store and they say, I haven't got a denim for them, They're lying. (laughs) They're absolutely lying. I'll tell them on the face.
1: Well, okay. So, actually, we already sort of got around your whole business. Uh, And we will get into more depth with each part of it uh, as we sort of talk about the different stages of the whole chain of of genes, really, of the whole production chain. But first, Rudy... Actually, I want to know, because you said you started your company in 93, but you know what was, what was before that? What did you do before that, and how did it all start?
0: I, I actually um, I studied biology, chemistry, physics, so most of my friends are medics, um, mm. and they do very well. They're a lot more than me, and they're doing something amazing for the world because they save people's lives. Um, but uh, on my score, I wanted to do fashion. I was always interested in fashion. I, I don't actually f- recall exactly how young or how old I was, but I remember at a very young age, well before uh, I did my Oliver. So I, w- I would suggest probably around twelve, thirteen. I, I, don't, I generally am really bad with times and frames, um, but I, I remember messing around with denim in the bathroom all the time because I, I may have spilled something on something and tried to rub it off and come up with some weird sort of uh, patina on the on the denim. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I I, I I found a substance called chlorine, um, and uh, it, it seemed to bleach things, and and uh, it I could make patterns out of it and so on. Mm. Um, and I and I was doing different things with soap and creating loads of stuff. There was a period of tie dye. I, I was doing weird things. I was getting marbles and tying them up in jeans. I was doing crazy things all the time. To the point that my mum used to keep gallons of bleach because uh, the bathroom would be all blue literally (laughs) i I think there's a brand called blue bathroom perhaps on that story um but anyway um so i think i think there was a love of denim of some sort um i didn't really pick up on it properly because i was interested in fashion like most kids are i did my uh, o-levels a-levels did biology chemistry physics and then i got a job in a shop and my parents were a little bit disillusioned you know is this guy just going to be uh uh, well, I, I don't want to use the word just, but they, they felt that I could do better. Mm. Um, mm. But anyway, so um, I, I I joined a, a retailer. I learned a lot. We were doing brands, um, which are probably not the brands that I aspire to now, but they were very label-orientated. It was all about brand labels and so on. And
1: on um, what time, I mean, so you said you're bad with time.
0: 1980, lines. I had, no, not 1980. So seventeen eighteen. um so we're talking probably 78, mm. 79, 80, around that. Yeah. Um, and then I, I did, uh, you know, every because we didn't have internet there in those days, we didn't have emails. So basically, I, I was very formulating that I, I had this vision that I wanted to be out on the road and have a company car. So I would apply to loads of different companies and I would, hen on heart, send 25 CVs by post every week. Mm. And there were handwritten, you know, applications and I'll get the odd interview and they would say, why should we give you the job? And I would say, because you can't afford not to. And how cocky, how arrogant (laughs) is that? You know, because you can't afford not to. But anyway, I went for an interview with Wrangler and uh, a guy called Thomas O'Shea used to be the head of human resources for vanity fair VF corporation, which is a huge business in power. Um, Asked me the same question, and, I, and he said, you what? And I said, you heard me. I said, you can't afford not to. And he said, okay, tell me why. And then I'd done a lot of research. I'd gone to a lot of Wrangler stockers I talked to them, and I said, well, first of all, you're on your knees because you haven't actually had anyone in the area for four and a half months, and they, this was a guy, and he did an amazing job, and you're trying to replace him, and you can't find the right guy. Anyway, they sent me off for uh, two nights, and I had loads of tests done. I fill in loads of forms. Uh, they basically psychoanalyze you. And then he brought me back, and he said, listen, I'm going to take a chance on you because you are the most rudest person I've ever met, but you probably have the potential of being the best. So I'm going to put a cat amongst the pigeons, as they call it. Um, so they took me on, and you know what? I had an amazing time. They sent me on so many courses. Um I I believe I'm one of the very few people that can make someone buy something, talk them out of it, put them back into that same league of buying, pull them out and put them back in. It's an art, but it's the wrong art. So nowadays, I teach my team, to be really honest, it's not about selling. It's about making sure you give a person experience. If you give that person experience, they they will stay with you. So don't buy on that day. They will come back to you. Mm -hmm. So the the whole sales route has changed now. People are informed. They have a brain, and you must acknowledge that. And their brain may be superior to much more superior than to mine, for example. They may be a barrister. They may be a lawyer. They may be a scientist, whatever. And it's just they simply haven't read up about the denim, and I have. And I can tell them about things. So when they talk about something, about denim, whatever, I will very humbly say, these are the facts that I will give you regarding what will happen to your jeans as you wear them. And then the decision is yours. I can tell you they fit you right now. In six months, they'll be too loose on you, perhaps. Or they're too tight now, but in six months, they will fit you better. So I can give them the information. Is, is, is there observations that really count?
1: That was you young in the, in the 80s, and, and you were then a, a sales rep for Wrangler then. That, that's what you did
0: yeah and then yeah and then um, I got very big headed i I was having an amazing time. I went in for pay rises every two months, and I got them hmm. um and I was doing exceptionally well, really, really well, but then I got head entered out of the industry, so there was a, a company that approached me and it was selling Karl Lagerfeld watches, so I joined the company they' mismanaged it i i I was actually selling more than the other guys um far more but they mismanaged it on budgets and whatever the company went bust so um, I didn't have a job I had a mortgage to fulfill um, and I went into uh, the first job that I could get with decent money with a company car obviously Um, this was thing when you're young you're just about what company car can you get how much money can you get and it's all about these things so I joined an umbrella company um, and I was handling their national accounts. I learned things there. you know, I I was serving people at Harrods and Harrods have this policy where they, well, I think it's changed now, but if you had an umbrella that was 15, 20 years old and you took it back and said, I bought this from you. Here's my receipt. They will give you money back or give you a new umbrella after 20 years. Hmm. So I learned, I learned things, you know, whether it be right or wrong, I learned how different organizations were dealt with things. Um, and I hated it. I have to say I didn't like that product. I got a job then. I applied with a company called Carly Grew, which you will know, became IC company. So mm-hmm. they used to sell brands like Cottonfield, uh, Jackpot, uh, Pig Performance, and then merged with the uh, Inwear Group, which became IC company. So we had Inwear, Matinique added on part two and so on. So I was the national sales manager over there. Um and I enjoyed that, but my 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 passion, um, perhaps not fully realized, but I was always running about denim and there was always, can we not do this and can we not do that and can we not do this fit? And um, they had me as an ambassador for Cottonfield on top of my uh, management duties and so on. Um, and I, I think eventually I came to a point that I was missing denim um and I think that's what pushed me into Son of Stag. So I opened the agency first with the wholesale distribution. We had loads of Danish brands, obviously. We had Klaus Samsu. Mm. Uh we had um Son of Stag, obviously. And then I had uh one or two other French labels like uh a brand called Minersung from Korea who did things with Denim. He did things that were different with Denim. Um so uh I got involved with that and so on. So the agency went really, really well. Um, and then there, there was something I was consulting for different groups. I was working on design, but I'm not a designer. I have to say I'm not a designer, but I'm a guy that's very important. I'm the link between the consumer and the designer. I'm the guy who knows what will sell, why it will sell, why it will not sell, what the details needed for that gene or product are. So I'm very good at that. That's what my thing is. So with that implemented, um, I wanted to be the first guy to know about new trends and to cheat, really to cheat. And, and I put my hands up. Um, if you open a shop, you get designers in the shop who are at the mercy of what's on the shop floor. So a designer comes in for inspiration, Thomas, and basically they can only see what's on the shop floor. They cannot see what was from the whole collection, so let's say take a collection, uh, let's say Thomas is a collection. Mm-hmm. So 200 pieces wide in the showroom, 250 pieces wide, comes in three different colorways or four different colorways in each product. It can be up to a 1,000 permutations. The retailer will only probably choose 15, 20, 25 permutations. They will take a small fraction of it and put it on their shop floor. Mm-hmm. And the product comes in different months in different windows. So when a designer comes, they've only seen a very small percentage of what could have, they could have seen. Now, if you own a shop and I, don't, I hope it, not everyone, not all designers decide to open a shop. <laughs> um, but you get to see all the product and you see it six, seven months before the product comes on the shop floor, sometimes eight months long ahead. So I could see what other designers couldn't see. I could go into the showrooms. I could try it, I could photograph it, I could see all the details, I could see the whole collections and so on, but I was not a cheat. So when I go to uh, showrooms, they know I have another cap, they know I consult, they know I take all this knowledge and I do use it, but I don't copy, I will never copy. So that's the reason why the owners of brands welcome me in their showroom. We go out for dinners and they... They're welcoming, and I can go and do everything. So Son of Stag really started for a different reason, Thomas. You know, everyone talks about Rudy is a geek, he's a denim geek, whatever. He's not. Let me let me be the first to tell, or you're the first to know on air that I'm not a denim geek. I love denim, but I'm not a geek. So I'm a businessman who has an affinity for the blue stuff. Hmm. So when I, when I look at collections and whatever – When I look at a wholesale collection in a showroom and so on, I will never take a gene and buy one pair to rip off and copy. That's not me. I may take a detail. Maybe I like the way it's been presented, maybe the silhouette or something, and it will stay in me. But I won't take the measurement and address it onto another gene. So that's not what I do. So everyone knows I'm very ethical in that way, very clean. Uh, but we have more knowledge than I don't know who else. So if you have a brand, let's say you replay or you Danham or whatever, you only know your own product. You haven't actually got multi brand products that you can go to different showrooms and actually study. So that's a big part of what we son of stag is. So it started as, as a vision, as, a, as something to help me with my consultancy. It was my calling card. If I go to negotiate my rates and my job and get a job offer, it's quite often because I'm son of stag. So I have all that knowledge to offer. So that's why I get gigs and I get gigs at good prices. Hmm. So that that actually explains a little bit about Sonostag. It explains the route that I came up. It explains the deviations from just being a consultancy and a wholesale distribution company to doing that and also retail and also then opening Soldier Blue. Mm-hmm.
1: So, but if we look at it from the, like a, let's say, a consumer perspective, a son of a stag, yep. how's the store then different from other similar denim stores out there?
0: Wow, it's uh, it's to do with uh, product and it's to do with the way we sell. So I, I don't like using the word sell, is promote, but we do sell. Let, let's face it, if we didn't sell, we'd be bust. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're really, 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 really honest. I mean, overly honest, where... Sometimes I will step up if I if I see a conversation between my staff and, and, and consumer and I feel that the consumer could do better, I will point them to another retailer. Mm-hmm. I don't think other other owners would ever do that. I, I I've never heard it. Well no, it's a lie. There, there there is one other and I won't name them because others will say, Why didn't you mention me? Because I am close to different retailers. But there is a retailer who does send me customers. And we, 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 we forward the favor back, more so, um, and we send people down that way. But genuinely, we, we're quite open with customers. They become friends of us. They're, they're allies. They're deep. When we had lockdown, they were ringing us up, uh, wanting to have a chat. Are you going to be okay? And so on. So that's a rapport building. So when you say, how are you different to other shops? We build rapport. We build relationships. We talk to a customer as if a family. Product-wise, we are, for example, let me give you an example where we've actually had loads of meetings. And and now brands, when they've dealt with this two or three seasons, they know we don't bite into it. So uh, a sales rep, calling themselves executive rep, Mm -hmm. whatever you want, Mm -hmm. um, they will say to you, I sold, sh- well, I was going to say shitloads. Okay. I will say it. I've sold lorry loads, shitloads of this. It, this is my best seller. Mm-hmm. That, that to most retailers is comforting. They will buy that because they'll say that must be good because all the other retailers have bought it. My mindset is different. I'm almost like, I don't want to buy it because everyone's stocking it. It's already available. It's not niche. It's not different. I want to offer something different. I obviously will buy things that I believe are good if someone has bought it, it's fine, but I won't be forced into it by someone's statement saying this is the best thing I've ever sold. And quite the opposite, if, someone, if a rep says to me, I haven't sold it, I will look deeply at it and I'll pick it up and I'll say, well, I love it, I'm going to buy this. And they'll say, yeah, but it's not sold because it's really expensive. To me, it's about the product. The expense is really important, but only secondary to the product. If the product is absolutely the prime product, then it should be more expensive because maybe more workmanship has gone on it.
2: There.
0: Mm. Um, there's a, there's a pair of full count uh, trousers that came in and I tested it straight away. Um, yesterday I was doing the pricing. I was at home and I don't like doing the pricing when I'm at home and I haven't seen the garment, whatever, but I, I put l- the formula in and then I'm looking at this garment, supposed to be 400 pounds. So I rang up the shop and I said to the staff, I said, guys, is this garment worth 400 pounds? And they're well, it is beautiful and there is a lot more workmanship behind it and so on. I said, can you put it to the side? I want to have a look at it. And I looked at it today. I walked in, I had a quick look and then I thought, it is fantastic. I, I love it. I think it's worth 400. But we actually priced it at 350, which means that no margin or it's, it's very badly marked up. But I, I, I feel that was the right price. So that's what I've done it at. Mm-hmm. So as opposed to a big chain, where they just use a formula, we are actually looking at different things. So some of the product on this that a lot of people, consumers don't realize, is that it's we tweak it. So we go back to the supplier, and a lot of people will uh, make a big noise about it. We don't make a big noise about it. We'll go to the supplier and say, we want these changes on that particular garment. They will, first of all, say... Well, that's going to be a minimum quantity because we can't just do 10 pairs or 20 pairs, whatever. Sometimes it means 150 pairs or whatever. We'll say, yes, fine, we'll do it. We can handle it, Thomas. Mm -hmm. We have a huge inventory. Um, What you see on the shop floor is about 10% of the stock we hold. So we can do that. (laughs) So we do that. And then they'll quite often say there's an upcharge. We'll try and negotiate the upcharge, but sometimes there is an upcharge because there's other details or it's cost them something, it can be as high as fifteen percent, twenty percent in some cases. It's, it's a huge amount. But if it means that I'm gonna sell the product really, 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 really well and other people are not gonna have the same formula, I will do it. And to my benefit and the and the and the and the brand's benefit, we both don't declare that it's been tweaked because the brand doesn't want every reseller going to them and saying, Can you change this? Can you can mm. you just imagine if yeah. 30, 40, 50 retailers had their own collection with the brand. The brand would just go, have to stop. Yeah. They, then it's an OEM. It, it just won't happen. So it's it's different. Um, so other story is very unique. And I've actually bought previously uh, from collections where most retailers force them to, to themselves to buy a certain number of items. I've gone into collections and just bought One item, but I'll back it up. I might buy 150 pairs or something, and that'll be it. And I'll only buy the one Mm. because that's what I believe in. Sometimes I go wide, sometimes go narrow. So it, it depends. So we're very, we we we're very different how we buy. So Um, so,
1: if we talk about sort of the the range of of brands that you have, and and so also let's slowly get into you know talking about your uh, agency because you have both Japanese, American, European brands as well, you know, and it's all it's all around heritage denim, whatever we call it, raw denim, you know, it's it's that's that's what you focus on exclusively, or is there other? products as well
0: it's it's about a continuity it's about uh so heritage yeah so it's about having some sort of belonging it's about quality in a big 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 way Mm -hmm. it's been about non-offensive my words may be offensive i may use word uh shit and whatever adjectives are used but when it comes to product we're very very clean how we do it um it's all about making sure it's the best product available that we can actually source for our customers. When they come in, there's a safety net. So one of the things that we do with Thomas is, for example, uh, when we get a product in, we actually go through the product. And let's say it's happened many, many, many times, not once, many times, but different brands, and it can happen. So you get a batch of jeans, and within the batch, there's three, four jeans, which are different color, or they feel different, or whatever, we'll pull those out at our cost, we sometimes won't even send them back to the supplier. They're going to my big lockup, and it's, it's it's just something that we absorb in the price. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to uh, products, we have Merzbe Swannan from Germany. Yeah. Now, that's uh, mainly uh, T-shirts, sweatshirts, whatever. These are on loop bill machine. So a bit like salvage denim when it comes to jeans. The loop bill is on the T-shirts and sweatshirts and so on. Um, so it's heritage again. Mm-hmm. It's what the old, old, old champion sweatshirts were made of. Um, you get a shrink in the length and not the width and so on. So it's geeky again to some degree, the product. Then we do, um, other products. Uh, we have Barnes and more from England. He's, he's super, super into the quality of the product and whatever. So he, if you, if you ask him a question about leather, he'll keep you entertained for a whole day. Um, so don't ask him because otherwise. <laughs> Uh, he's it, it, worse than I ever will be. Um, so in a good way, he is really a lovely guy. Um, then we have, um, loads of Japanese brands. Um, so we have Oni, uh, I think we have the biggest collection of Oni in the world. Um, it's uh, it, it sadly killed a few other brands off. Um, so, um, I don't necessarily wanna, Talk about the brands is killed off because not fair on those brands because they're still good brands. Mm-hmm. But we, we've had to drop a few brands because of Only jeans. Full Count's an amazing seller for us. Um, the other one is Warehouse & code. Now, a lot of these brands, Tellison we distribute. It, we have White Oak Co. Mills still, uh, a huge supply off. Um, so when we go into these brands, we if we believe in it, we will back the brand. We won't just have two styles or whatever. Um, we will buy the smallest and the biggest. Um, so we have a lot of Japanese brands. Uh, Spellbound is a big, big one for us on the shirts in particular. Uh, they do some wonderful chinos, uh, in salvage fabric. So yes, we do Japanese, German, European, American, um, English. So the, the, the thing that brings it all back together, it's, it's normally the same guy who wear all these products. It's not someone different. Hmm. Um, so it's you'd wear it, I'd wear it. Um, of a, of a core cool customer, it's quite a wide age grouping. It's probably from twenty-five to. There's no upper limit, but of a main guy who's probably spending a lot of money with us, it's probably around thirty to fifty-five. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, 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 there is the essence of quality. Um, it's about having been made on the old looms. Uh, it's been made the correct way. There's the appreciation for the qualities and the, and the standards and so on. There's brands like, uh, Toys McCoy and Free Wheelers. Uh, if you, uh, I'm sure you have, but if you, if you examine the quality on Free Wheelers, you'd say, yes, it is a very, very expensive product, but it's amazing. It puts other brands in shade when it comes to some of the coats and things they do. Hmm. Um, and we buy less of it. So rather than buy on a, on a, I don't know, and a BuzzFix and the an N1 jacket. We would probably buy forty, fifty of them on a color. Uh, we might only buy fifteen of these other ones that we will sell each one, most probably. And and
1: then which of these branches then that you distribute? You mentioned Teleson already. That's
0: that. So we look after Mersey Swannen mm-hmm. um, and uh, Peter Gitter and Robert are very close to us. So they work with us. Uh, we look after the UK and Ireland for them. Um, Teleson, uh we look after we have for a very long time um, in the UK Spellbound well. yeah. um, uh, Spellbound we, we look after as well so uh, there's a few brands that we, we look after there's some projects that we are involved with uh, there's a brand called Smiths that's Suzuki which is a crazy project we're involved in um, and it's uh It's not about money at all with these guys. They have got a lot of money. It's not about money. It's all about having fun and doing it the right way and having an amazing product to the point that sometimes I've seen production come out and they they don't want it to go out. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. It's better than a lot of the other stuff on the market. Why don't you want to come out? Well, we're not happy with it. And I'm like, why are you not happy with it? And when they say it just doesn't feel right, I'm like, okay, you have got a lot of money to be able to say that and not put it on the marketplace and have produced it in amazing factories. So uh, it's 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 an amazing group of people. In fact, um, it's an English guy, and two uh, Japanese guys, and they use their pseudonym, their names, they hide. So one is called Smith, which is the English guy. Is that Suzuki? Are the two Japanese guys not the real names? But they decided to form a little clique. And they looked for almost a year and a half to find someone that they could trust, not to give their identity away. So I'm only a run around for them. I go to the factories, check out the factories for them. I do all the running around for them and hide their identity. So that's my job. Hmm. But I love going to factories. So it's a great job for me. And, um, and
1: let's talk about that because that, I guess, is, is your consulting then. That's, that's what you've already mentioned, that you do consulting as well. That is a project like this, for instance.
0: Uh no. So the factory thing is a byproduct of my consultancy. So I consult on if someone wants to put a brand together uh from start to finish or they want certain parts of the jigsaw missing, they let's say they need the help of the designer and they've got or they want a guy for a conceptual uh detailing or they want an illustrator or they want a factory or something's missing or they want the whole thing put together. That's where we come in. But as a byproduct of all these things that we do as consultants, we end up in factories. So I've I've ended I've gone to loads of factories around China, Turkey, Japan, um, Indonesia. So and, it, and it's something I enjoy doing. I, I love getting in there. Um, I I learned a very hard lesson. I went to China and I saw these nets on top of the buildings, and I was uh, with my friend. And I was like hey, this factory really seems cool. It's a, it's a big factory and they have even got a net. So if if someone's playing football on the roof or whatever, the ball goes over. It's, it's, and he laughed. He said, you've got to be kidding me. You really don't know what this is. Uh, you know, I was naive. Mm. And he said, there's suicide nets. I said, what? He said, yeah, the suicide net. So it's to stop people jumping over. And do you know what? It, it is frightening. So some of the conditions in some of the factories – are disgusting and they hide it from you as a visitor. Now, some factories that you know, I I, I think it's wrong to say all factories in a c- certain country are wrong. There could be amazing factories and there are. I've gone to amazing factories in China and they are ethical and they're clean and they do a fantastic production. But you can't be guaranteed that. So when someone says to me something is made somewhere. I will say, can you give me the name of the factory and I want to check it out before I buy it from you? Hmm. So I don't think other buyers do that because they haven't got the the network to check up. They haven't got the network or or the foresight to go and check it. I will do my best to make sure that other products haven't got blood stains on the garments. Hmm. When I say blood stains, I use it in a different term. I don't want child labor. I don't want people abused. I don't want people in a bad situation to make the things that I wear because I can afford to go to an independent. I don't need to go and buy it from, you know, it's not all about price for me. I, of course it is important to me. Price factor is really important. But so we'll go back to the factories, Mm -hmm. Thomas, Mm -hmm. uh, and I, and I get way led. You, you, you're talking about making products and so on. So I know we talked a little bit about the cycle of, uh, ending up in your basket a product where did it start and so on yeah. so there's a guy who's first of all called let's say thomas or rudy who says let's make a brand so very few people make it from that stage to actually having a garment made that goes in someone else's shopping basket on the net or on a physical store mm-hmm. so there's loads of stages so first of all um, it's it's You know, you you come up with a concept, an idea. A concept is not an idea. An idea is an idea. A concept is a concept. So you start with the idea that I want to do a clothing brand. Then you go into what sort of clothing brand is it going to be. You need to work out your demographics. You need to work out on who's going to uh, buy your product. Is it If it was a house, is it a detached house, is it a terrace house? Is it an apartment? And so on. And then if it's a dog, what type of dog is it? What car is it? If it's a car, is it Lamborghini? Is it a Fiat Punto? What is it? So this is a sort of work that goes, if you do it professionally and do it correctly, these are all the bits of work that go into building a brand story up where you want to be the mission statement, the vision statement, uh, the strategy behind it and so on. So when you talk about consultancy, this is some of the things that I get involved with. So I've had Situations where I've actually locked people up. I mean, I, not normally in jail, but you know, I've, I've actually put them in the room and say, listen, guys, coffee is going to be delivered. Food is going to be delivered, but we're not leaving. You can use a toilet next door, but you come back in. You don't talk to anyone in the corridor. You come back in here. You got 10 minutes to relieve yourself and get back in here. Okay. Uh, fine. And then we talk about these things and we, we have a timetable to talk about what the mission statement is going to be. Um and you know what? You start at eight in the morning and you have a vision or you have a thought in your head that you're gonna finish by five. Thomas it goes on for days. Mm-hmm. Um and there's crying, there's shouting, there's hugs. Eventually you come up with a single statement and the single statement is a one line statement. And when you achieve it, do you know what? There's hugs, there's kisses, there's the guy you called rude names to three days ago is your best friend suddenly. Mm-hmm. And it's so powering to do these things. So I I really believe if you do uh, something, then you should have uh, a mission, a vision, and so on. I won't tell you the mission, vision, on some of the There's a reason why. We're going through the same process right now. So I would dilute because I know my guys will be listening to some of the things I've said, and I really want to stay away from it. I want them to help me realize the mission, vision statement. So... Factory floors, um, you can get amazing ones, you can get really bad ones. Um, as a punter, as a consumer, I would really, 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 really uh, promote the idea that people research what they're buying and where they're buying from hmm. because surely you don't want uh, your garment to be made in a factory with a child labour or people being amused or, you know… Um, and he also uh, comes out of uh, bad qualities, because you know if people were made to work with a smile on the face and they're really happy and so on, they're going to produce an amazing garment for you. Um, I went to the spellbound factories. I spent nine days with them, and they took me to some third-party factories as well, which is really nice for them to do, because normally they're very closeted people. don't want anyone to find out anything else apart from what they need to know. But Spellbound, uh, which is part of the Domingo group, they're really good. So they took me to... Uh, the same with uh, Oni. So uh, Oishi-san, he's taken Linda and me to factories and so on. Um, so uh, we're very close to different people and they take us to factories and so on. So we get to see uh, amazing factories, really, really beautiful, almost going into hospital situations. And then I've been to some countries where you think, you know what, I don't want to even touch anything Oh yeah, because everything... It's sticky, it's disgusting, uh, animals flying around, um, staff being abused, um, I don't want anything to do with this. And then you have to be also clever because when we make visits to factories uh, in certain countries, what you do is that you say, I'm coming on the 13th on Tuesday at two o'clock and then you turn up on the 6th, on Tuesday the 6th, one week before on the same time and then they'll... Hmm. Be sh- hopefully, call out that you know you see the real state of the factory because they, if they turn you away, then you you, you should be um, worried that maybe they're turning you away for a reason. Mm-hmm. They don't want you to see uh, the factory in the real state. So um, that's factories. Then after factories, um, obviously uh, th- there's much to be done with the pricing. So what a lot of people don't actually realise is that there is. So many stages in the garment. So when it starts, um, the concept, the idea first and the concept, the work behind the concept, then you've got consultants like me jumping in. Um, then you got, uh, the build up, uh, you got the tags, the labeling, all the different things that you have to have on the garment. Then you need to actually sell it. And there's a whole range of different choices of selling it. So before it gets to my shop, it may have gone through from the brand to my shop directly. They may have sold it to me directly. Or they may have an agent or they may have a distributor or they may have uh, sometimes sub-distributor. So they have a distributor who takes a big slice and gets an agent or a sub-distributor. Mm-hmm. Then he sells it to the retailer. The retailer has got to make money down to the consumer. There's so many different people who need to make money. So the, the, the owner of the brand, Thomas, for example, is a brand you surely are not going to make a brand without vision of making some money. So you want some money at the end of it. So that's number one, the factory who makes it need to make money. After that, uh, there's packaging, logistics, different things that add to the price. It goes through to the distributor or the brand owner, uh, sorry, the distributor, the distributor then divides it into an agent or sub distributor. And then that goes to the retailer who also got to make money on it. Uh, so, you know it, it's
1: it's you multiply uh, it a lot just, of times yeah the the, the yeah. actual cost of the raw material let's say yes uh, it, it's a lot higher and of course that also depends on on the business setup i mean some retailers have a you know bigger markups and some have smaller markups and and yeah um so so yeah uh, I, I i know a little bit about that but, uh, but but like you said it's maybe not something that mm, some listeners have have ever th- thought about you know um and and, and And that's also where you, I'm sure you've many times had questions. Why is this so expensive? You know, so that yeah, it's it's not always easy. And um, yeah,
0: yeah, I I think I think you know the way the way as as a consumer personally, let's say I'm buying something, I will I will look at it. Something I'll put it up in the air and say, listen, if I'm looking at, uh, let's say, in fact, we we bought a camera recently, and sure enough, I can I can buy the same camera, a little bit cheaper as a gray import, you know, it's come from Japan or whatever, Mm -hmm. but let's say something goes wrong with it. Am I going to go to the hassle of returning it, doing whatever I need to, am I uh, in preference of walking down to brick lane, uh, or actually commercial street in this case, uh, and going to wax camera and saying, guys, I just bought this uh, camera from you for two and a half grand. Um, I'm not quite happy with it. Can you teach me some of the bits that go there? Or am I doing something wrong? Or it's it's, it's not working the way it should. They, they're going to handle it straight away. I know they are. They, they're known for their service. So I'd rather spend a little bit more, get the product that I know that I deserve, that I want, and the service to go with it. You know, do mm. I? In fact, it's worth with a pair of jeans, for example. Do you want to buy on price or do you want to buy on service? And product, or do you just want to buy product? So yes, I understand there's reasons and means and uh, for for different distributions uh, tax. So you have online stores, you have bricks and mortars, you have you have different things. There, and, and I and I think that each one has a space in this world. There's no reason why we can't all live together. It's down to the consumer to choose the path they want to take. Now. Where stack actually wins is that we don't publish what we've done uh, with the tweaks and so on. So we tweak a lot of our products. Um, and sometimes customers will come in and say, do you know what, I had that product before and I bought it from you, it fits differently, so I'm not happy. That's an odd one. Normally it's the other way around, um, where someone comes in and says, I bought that off you I tried it elsewhere or I bought another one it doesn't fit me as well I want the same again what's happened hmm. So um we 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 create and build loyalty bit by bit we we're in for the long term so you know we do our own thing um I think we get sometimes blamed like um I'm talking to you um off the reel no nothing pre-rehearsed I'm I'm just talking looking out the window having a chat with you Thomas um Now, that's the way I am. But, for example, um, we some people in the industry think we don't want to talk, we don't want to share, we don't want to do this, we you know, whatever. Everyone's got a different view on everyone else. And I think we all belong in the same big ship that's sailing somewhere in the ocean and we all want to survive and we all want to do well. Um, and, and, And I think with this COVID thing and whatever, it's brought some people together, which is great. Um, some bad bits about covid, obviously that I hope we we don't live with mm-hmm. but some good bits you know we are knocking on neighbors and we're trying to offer help and so on which which is a rarity mm-hmm. um but when it comes to product um I think when it comes to um choices and prices, I think the the consumer isn't always informed fully of the amount of work that goes into producing a garment so for example, if you take a uh, a gene that's gone, let's say you've had a gene for three years and you need to do some repair work to it. Some people come in and say, right, the seam's gone. It may not be a gene that bought from a sonostag, for example, it could be a gene that they cherished and they bought it four years ago, five years ago from somewhere. And, and, and you know, if a gene survives for five years without any repairs, you've done exceptionally well if you were using it regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, so they want to, they want, two pockets fixed, they want two new pocket bags, they want the hems redone, they want uh, six different holes repaired. I mean, you're rebuilding a gene Now, if you rebuild that gene, I, I, I haven't costed it exactly, but let's say the repair bill comes to £150. They may say, well, it's a gene from Edwin and it only cost me £140. Mm-hmm. Why would I want to pay £150 to repair all of that? Well, it's a choice for the consumer because they may like the fade and patina that they've got. They may have stunning patina. They might have it, beautiful fades so that they don't want to let go of. And yes, it's cheaper to buy new. Um, so it, it, it's uh, when you when you make a gene up, because of the quantity savings that you have when you make a gene up, that's the reason why it's actually a decent price. If you make a gene from scratch. Three hundred pound is not a big price. It no, would be no. more like yeah. five, six, seven, eight hundred pounds, and that's keeping a fair load. You're still using patterns, which are fairly a template pattern. So when people say we're going to do made-to-measure jeans, they're not always made-to-measure. You and I know that. Yeah. Thomas. Well, they're templates. Yeah.
1: Cost customized templates somehow, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Exactly. So so and even then, uh, and they're not cheating. These guys are not cheating. No, if they're making made-to-measure jean. And they're charging between five hundred and a thousand pounds. That's what it is. Listen, as a consumer, you have a choice. And if I could afford it, maybe I want to make to measure gene. And if I could afford it, maybe I want a Lamborghini rather than a Mini. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but everyone has choices. But people have to understand that when you when you're in retail, the formula used to be that if you can make ten percent net margin, Thomas, it was a good business if you made 12, 13% net margin after all your costs and after you paid your staff, all the bits and pieces, 13, 14% will be extortionate. It'd be like you are really, really a big businessman. Nowadays, if you can make 5% with all the stress that you put into it, all the work you put in, you've got a really good business with just 5% hmm. extra net margin. Um, so I think, I think, you know, consumers, fortunately for some of the staff, we've been going for such a long, long time, for 27 years or whatever it is. I think um, people understand who we are. They know we're not taking the piss. They know that we are very fair people. If we make a mistake, we all make mistakes. We put our hands up and say, do you know what? We screwed up. How can we put it better for you? Mm-hmm. We negotiate. Um, so that's the difference you know I know that you say what makes like different mm-hmm. we're very humble very are easy going we're very fair but the product is amazing the, the mix of the product is, uh, is very unique and I think that's
1: a perfect place to actually get uh end this podcast I only have one last question left this question I don't know if you heard it before uh, if you heard any of the previous episodes but uh, the question is of course I must make clear is hypothetical uh, but let's say you just moved into a new house uh, and and let's say uh, the house would be burning what would you then rush back in through the flames to get Uh,
0: anyone living
1: okay let's say anyone living is outside pets everyone you know So we're only talking Um, material things or memories or whatever it might be.
0: It'd be anything to do. I I know some people say their favorite pair of jeans, but it isn't me. I'm going to give a very soapy answer and say, (laughs) it's going to be things that remind me of my childhood and my kids and my family and my other half and so on. Mm -hmm. So those are the first things I'll go and retrieve. Um, Anything living first and then memories. And if... And then obviously then thereafter, and fortunately, Thomas my most precious collections of denim and everything is in a, in a different place so hmm. they won't be burning in the house
1: that was a great way to end the podcast and uh, really uh, once again thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and uh, your experience with, with the whole chain of, uh, of making jeans and selling them
0: thank you for having me Thomas it's been great and I uh, hope you take all the bad bits out <laughs> I won't <laughs> <laughs> you've
1: made it to the end of this episode i hope you enjoyed it make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a future episode and if you want to get more content about denim go to denimhunters.com